This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. This is a science podcast for May 6, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, we have Paul Vusin, a staff writer for science. He's been following geologists' search for the Anthropocene's golden spike. Basically, what is the best spot on Earth to point to and say, we have entered the latest epoch? The Holocene is over. We are now in a time dominated by humanity and its byproducts. After that, we hear from researcher George Vujkovic. We talk about how some chemicals in sunscreens are not good for corals and sea anemones, and how these chemicals are converted by the organisms into phototoxins, which then kill the organisms. We live in the Anthropocene, right? This is a time on planet Earth dominated by human activity to such an extent the evidence is present globally in the soil, the air, and the water. Okay, maybe mentally we are there, but there are certain standards that need to be met to officially close the previous epoch and open up a new one called the Anthropocene. Paul Vusin, a staff writer here at Science, wrote about the steps to call time on the Holocene this week. Hi, Paul. Hello. All right, so the first thing we need is to get a date. When does the Holocene end and when does the Anthropocene start? And that's already decided. So step one is decided anyway. Decided, but not approved. <laughs> <laughs> but decided as in the early 1950s, maybe 1952. That was decided a few years ago. And then now there's this requirement for starting a new epic that's called the Golden Spike. That's right. I love this term. <laughs> it's, not the, uh, it's not the formal term. What is a golden spike in this kind of setting? A golden spike is the global stratigraphic stratotype endpoint. To actually have a period of geologic time approved, it needs to come from typically a rock record. So you have this, hey, this rock is different from these other rocks and globally represents a change in the earth. You have that rock sample, you find the ultimate example of 
this is this different geological time that we can see in this rock. Here's the dividing point from the previous one. The golden spike is that kind of ultimate example of the Anthropocene that is needed to submit to the bureaucracy of geological time for approval. But I was thinking it was like a spike and a signal. Is that not what is why it's called a spike? You need a signal. You need a, a spike in a point so you can clearly see the boundary globally. Often that is microfossil extinctions. That's the kind of classic thing, but it could also be the iridium layer from the asteroid impact for the Anthropocene. It will likely be the bomb spike, uh, the fallout that followed the ramp up in atmospheric nuclear testing. The signal from bombings is radiation, right? So like a layer of radioactive material that's spread all over the Earth. Yeah, plutonium, also radiocarbon, some other different radioactive materials. That is one signal, but there are actually kind of a constellation of signals that are being considered as part of the golden spike. What are some of the other contenders for the signal of the onset of the Anthropocene? Yeah, this bomb spike and but really the kind of the big alteration that was happening, it's called the Great Acceleration, is most of human emissions of CO2 come after the 1950s, like vast majority, maybe 88%, 90%, something like that. So this kind of great acceleration period, you'd like to have something that also captures that. And one thing they've seen are these spherical fly ash particles, like tiny little balls that come out of fossil fuel emissions. And you can find them everywhere starting around the 1950s. There are also things like microplastics, also variations in certain isotopic systems like carbon, nitrogen that reflect, especially the use of fossil fuels. And there's also even some things that are linked to this prodigious level of farming that started happening during industrialization. Yeah. So you have all this fertilizer runoff, all this nitrogen going into the ocean, causing these huge plumes of algae in places that if you look at the marine cores, they have the same amount of nitrogen for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then 1950s, huge increase in nitrogen. So we have this time and we have, you know, a series of options for what could be tagged as important to show the Anthropocene starting. But then you also have to find a place on Earth where you're going to pull the spike out and say, here it is. That is also up for grabs right now. So what are some of the locations where a marker might be found? Over the past few years, the Anthropocene Working Group has been developing this proposal, has been looking around the planet for different example systems that people have studied before that seem likely to contain these marker. And the team that's been doing this is meeting later in May to consider all these candidates. Some of them are in, you know, these kind of finely layered annual lakes in Northeast China or in Canada that really beautifully capture the year-by-year -year changes. And that's being able to date things is an incredibly important part of this. And from what I've heard talking with the people working on it, they both capture beautiful signals of this 1950s increase. But there are also marine sediments where you have a huge nitrogen runoff and also picking up these other markers. There's an ice core from the Antarctic Peninsula that shows a big increase in methane, which is another possible marker. There's corals that can record the bomb spike, especially in the Pacific. There are peat bogs in Poland. It's just a, a whole host of things. They put together this proposal, you know, they're going to have this whole vote. They'll pick one that they feel is the best, but then they can also submit supporting evidence from other sites. That could be maybe five or six other of these could end up in the submission. 
So how important is it which one of these things is chosen? What does that change if it's a peat bog in Poland or underneath a bay off of Japan? I don't think it will change too much as long as they just pick the strongest candidate. You know, it's not going to change our understanding of what's going on now or the world. <laughs> I mean, there might be this, you know, such as such a concept that is so relevant to humanity. Yeah. Some of these sites are going to be incredibly remote. You can never visit them. Others you could just drive to and say, hey, there's the you know, Anthropocene marker. So I don't know if that will factor into what they're thinking. But, you know, as long as they make a strong case, which it's far from guaranteed, this will be approved. Yeah, it's not a done deal that this will be decided. And when we say approved, it's not just approving a particular marker or a particular golden spike, but it's just changing epics might actually not happen. Yes. In all likelihood, the working group will settle on something. 60% of them have to agree on the site uh, and move it forward. But then it goes up through the bureaucracy of geological time, as I like to think of it. <laughs> so then it must be approved by the subcommission on quaternary stratigraphy and then the overall International Commission on Stratigraphy, and then the body above that as well. And there are a lot of stratigraphers, traditional people who work on sedimentary rocks, who like study the changes in rocks, who are very dubious of the Anthropocene as, as a need to define in chronostratigraphic time. This is not cluing us into some secret part of the past, like, oh, look at all these different places on Earth. We see this change in the rocks, and that tells us about some global event. We know about this global event. Right. We started already knowing this. It's not starting with the rock and trying to figure this out. These changes are just enormous, immense. You know, we are the asteroid, right? Even if we can't see the actual rocks that have been formed yet, there's a case to be made for formalizing it. And you can also understand some of the skepticism as well. So will things change if we all, you know, we're going to have to go on all the Wikipedia pages and end the Holocene on the <laughs> sidebar? Like what, what will happen if the Holocene is ended and the Anthropocene starts? Partially, there's this, you know, this is just another way of awakening people to climate change. But also, in some ways, you know, it's going to muck up because the Anthropocene has become such a widely used term with a kind of fungible starting date. Is it the 1800s? Is it the start of farming? You know, there are a lot of different ways it's been defined. And the question is, having this geological definition, I mean, does that mess up the archaeological definition? It will cause a little bit of uh, chaos, I guess. Interesting. All right. Well, so when is that chaos set to happen, if it does happen? What's the kind of the deciding date? December, they're hoping to have their final candidate selected. Assuming a proposal goes forward, it'll get chewed through in the upper bureaucracies over the next year. So something could be approved or discarded by end of next year, maybe early 2024. If it fails to pass muster, it cannot come up again for another 10 years. Oh, it's, This is another part of the system where just to prevent these from continually being attempt to redefine. And because of this, some of these disputes last for, you know, generations and generations. What's the hurry, Paul, right? It's geologic time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Paul Vusin is a staff writer for science. If you have your own ideas about what we should name as the golden spike or like one of the options discussed here, tweet to us at Science Magazine with your favorite. Up next, we have researcher George A. Vujkovic. We talk about a very common sunscreen ingredient that turns out to be toxic for some sea life.
This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there is no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Coral reefs and the animals and everything else that lives on them or around them are under a lot of stress these days. Changing water temperatures, disruption of their ecosystem by things dying off or being introduced. Another suspected stressor of corals is sunscreen from tourists, from people getting in the water near them. George A. Vucevic and colleagues wrote this week in Science about how sea anemones and corals can take a common sunscreen ingredient and turn it into a phototoxin, basically a chemical that does bad things to them when exposed to the sun. Hi, George. Hi, Sarah. The sunscreen component that we're talking about today is oxybenzone. How common is this molecule in sunscreens? So it's very common. The first sunscreen that you grab at a store and look at its label, it will most likely contain oxybenzone at least in the U.S., unless you're in a place like Hawaii where they're actually banned right now. What exactly does it do to protect you from the sun? Right. So oxybenzone, it's an organic uh, sunscreen, which means that it basically acts by absorbing sunlight. And when it absorbs sunlight, it gets excited to this higher energy state. In this state, it's highly reactive which can be a little bit worrisome. However, oxybenzone actually has this alcohol group which helps deactivate it and helps return it back down to the ground state where it it emits heat. So it basically converted sunlight energy into heat energy. Now, there's been the suspicion that oxybenzone, that the substance is harmful to things that live in reefs like coral, sea anemone, Why do people think that it might be bad before this paper, before you figure out what you did? There were several studies that that exposed different aquatic organisms to oxybenzone. They found many different effects, most of which were hormonal disrupting effects, so endocrine effects. There was one study that actually indicated some phototoxic effects, and it suggested that the phototoxic effects were a lot more important. They died five or six times faster in the presence of light. This was what actually inspired our work. So in this paper, yeah, you're looking for a mechanism. You took these organisms and you added in the oxybenzone and you added in sun or no sun. So what happened to the coral and to the anemones in your uh, lab setup? That's a good way to talk about it, sun or no sun where basically sun is giving them the full spectrum of of sunlight. And then in no sun, we actually remove the absorption spectrum of oxybenzone. Because if oxybenzone were a phototoxin, as we suspected, it would actually need to be able to react with the light in order to generate toxicity. And what we found was that under full spectrum sunlight, the animals died very quickly within about 10 days. While if we remove the absorption spectrum 
of oxybenzone. So this no sun scenario, the animals actually lived for a full 21 days. And that helps you narrow down the mechanism here. You know, it's not endocrine. It's something going on with phototoxicity. Exactly. I mean, there, there might be endocrine as well in the background. Right. You can kill them just fine without that. That's right. Let's dive into the mechanism here. What do you think is happening with this molecule that is making it phototoxic to these organisms? So what we found, Sarah, here is that oxybenzone sunscreen has this alcohol group that deactivates it when it absorbs energy and converts this sunlight energy into heat. This alcohol group gets metabolized inside the anemones. It actually gets replaced with a glucose group. And we find that once you get this glucose group on the oxybenzone instead of the alcohol, it doesn't function as a sunscreen anymore. You now actually have a photosensitizer. So a molecule that's going to stay in this high energy state and be very reactive. And it can react with tissue. It forms reactive oxygen species that can cause damage to different biomolecules. We know a little bit about how this is metabolized in these organisms, but it turns out that the fact that they're see-through is also important. I thought this was really interesting. It's important because these organisms, light needs to penetrate inside of them in order for these molecules to be phototoxic. They need light for this mechanism to work. That's very likely a crucial reason that this is happening. And the reason that they're see-through is kind of an evolutionary reason, most likely, because they have uh, symbiotic relationships with algal cells. These algae need sunlight in order to do their thing. What is the role of the algae symbionts in all of this? I think the easiest way to explain this is to tell you that we introduced here a new organism. So we actually worked with a sea anemone that has no algae. So this way, it's the exact same sea anemone, but we had just removed all of the algae from it. So this way, we can have a direct comparison to the normal sea anemone. And when we worked with this new sea anemone, we found that it died two to three times faster than the anemone with algae. So oxybenzone sunscreen was a lot more toxic to it. This was an interesting finding. And uh, we assumed that this would be because maybe it has more of this toxic metabolite accumulated inside it. And when we first looked at the system, we actually found the opposite. We found that the animal with algae accumulates much, much more, 15 times more toxic metabolites. However, we found that almost all of these toxic metabolites in the animal with algae are actually sequestered inside of the algae cells. So that outside of the algae cells in the actual animal, there is very little of these metabolites. Right. And how does that apply out in the real world? Like, are there anemones without algae in them? Are there corals without algae? These anemones without algae are actually a model for bleached corals. As we hear all the time in the news these days, there's these massive bleaching events where corals are expelling their symbiotic algae. Basically, the finding that oxymenzone sunscreen is more toxic to these bleached anemones could suggest that it's also more toxic to bleached corals and that it would actually exacerbate these negative effects of, of warming oceans obviously only in the in the areas where, where you have human activity around reefs. We've talked about a little bit about animals and now algae as well, but what about with people? Do we have any idea whether or not this metabolic process is happening when we're exposed to oxybenzone? We do know that inside our bodies, we also generate metabolites of oxybenzone. 
And the major metabolite is oxybenzone glucuronide, which is actually very similar to the glucoside. It also replaces this alcohol group with this glucuronic acid. It forms very quickly within hours after putting oxybenzone on yourself. You could actually detect it in your urine. I found this out from personal experience at one point. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, so I was actually curious in exactly what you're asking me now is uh, basically what, what do we know about this? And while we did know that we're forming this metabolite, we actually didn't know anything about this metabolite's phototoxicity, whether it is or isn't. So when I found this in corals, I was also curious what is happening with our metabolite. I ended up one night just uh, putting a lot of sunscreen on myself <laughs> and then uh, the next day uh, measuring it in my urine, taking some samples, purifying it. And it turned out that this new molecule that I isolated ended up being a phototoxin as well. But you're not see-through, <laughs> so maybe it's not as harmful for us. That's a very important point, yes. So it's a question of where exactly this compound is formed. If it's at the very surface of the skin, then maybe it could have an effect. If it's formed in the liver, like a lot of these metabolic products are in humans, then uh, maybe not. Really interesting. What's the takeaway here for chemical sunscreens? Is there you know, a path to making them less damaging to sea creatures based on what you found out about how this one is metabolized? A lot of these other sunscreens that are FDA approved, I think there's a list of about 14 of them. A good maybe five others have very similar structural motif to oxybenzone sunscreen, where they also have this alcohol group, which you would suspect could very similarly get metabolized and replaced by a glucose molecule. So I think just generally for development of safer sunscreens, you would probably want to try to avoid molecules with these functional groups and definitely test potential metabolic products that are formed. So with this information, you know, and you studied this for a while, obviously, you know, does that mean that you avoid these chemical sunscreens and stick with the mineral ones? Yes, I do stick to uh, zinc oxide or titanium dioxide, the mineral ones. I think the reason to go with those is there's two main things. First, they're not lipophilic. And second, they physically deflect light. Right. So they're shiny, <laughs> meaning they just the light just bounces off. It doesn't cause a chemical reaction. Exactly. And that's why people don't like them, because they leave this big white blob on you, but it's actually good for you. And then not lipophilic means that they're not trying to sneak into your skin. Exactly. So you don't have this worry that who knows what they might be doing inside of me when they get in there. OK, well, thank you so much, George. This has been really fun. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really enjoyed chatting with you. George Vujkovic is a PhD candidate in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford University. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crusby with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? 
Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.